This episode of Scandal Water contains adult themes and descriptions of violence. It is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively. Your hosts, Candy and Ashley, will discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale. Oh, it's that time of day. Tune in and hear what the ladies say. It's time to bend your ear when the silver screen appears. Stories about the stage and screen and everything in between. So come on and join the fun. The curtain opens in three, two, one. Stories and scandal water. It's where you need to be. Stories and scandal water. Let's pour you a cup of tea. Happy season three, Ashley. Happy season three. We are here, sister. Isn't this amazing? It is amazing. Starting our third season. What would this be? Our 101st episode, I guess? Yes, I believe it is. I love it. Mm -hmm. This is so fun. And we are starting out on such a high note because we are are coming in hot. We are. These these debut episodes are going to be so interesting. You know, I like to start by asking a little question. Yes, you do. Mm -hmm. So here's what I will ask you. Everybody knows, I think, by this time that we do have just a tiny interest in true crime. Right. And I also know that we've discussed before, I know you're familiar with the podcast, Your Own Backyard by Chris Lambert, but have you ever had a chance to actually listen to that? No, I have not. But I remember seeing a episode, um, I'm going to call it Dateline, I don't know it was Mm -hmm. Dateline, but he was the one that helped to find, I think you even talked about it in one of our episodes, right? Uh, What was her name? Smart? Kristen Smart. Kristen Smart, he helped to find her. He absolutely did. Or to find her killer. Well, he he helped to resol- get the case resolved. Yes, get it resolved. 100%. Yeah, he was a fella who started this podcast, again, called Your Own Backyard, because he shared in some different interviews what motivated him was that it it was basically in his backyard. As he would travel around his city, mm-hmm. different places, he would pass this billboard that had the smiling face of this beautiful young woman. She was a college student who had disappeared from Cal Poly in 1996. And he shared that he saw it, you know, fading over the years, yeah, but it was still there and it registered with him one day whatever happened to this woman did Mm -hmm. anybody ever discover did anybody ever find her and this led him to the idea of investigating on his own it was not his field right you know in fact I believe he has a music background but because of his work researching digging into it people started coming forward because he was opening new lines of communication putting it in front of the public again and he started that in 2019 and in 2023 Paul Flores was convicted for Kristen's murder. Just think about that. What if he had never picked up the microphone and decided to do this? I know. Absolutely. Such a powerful story. Well, that is something that kind of spoke to Ashley and myself. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, we are not going to be able to create a documentary or solve any cold cases. No. But we were fascinated by the idea of looking at things that are right there in front of you. Interesting cases that are in our own backyard, Mm -hmm. so to speak, which for us is Kentucky. Right. So we decided that our 
theme as we open season three would be in our own backyard. And we are going to kick off this new season with a two episode feature on a fascinating case that occurred in towns not too far away from us back in 1936. And this case has more twists and turns than a curly fry. <laughs> or a dark highway. Or a dark, there you go, or a dark highway. That, in fact, is the basis for this. Ashley, you're the one who found the book Dark Highway. Do you want to share quickly how that came about? Oh, yes. I had heard about it, I think, shortly after it was published in 2016, mm-hmm. 2017, yes. around in there. And the author, Anne D'Angelo, mm-hmm. came to a local library and was giving a talk. And I went and saw her talk. And I, I don't remember if I bought the book there, but I know that she autographed it for yes. me. But, you know, it's been five or six years since then. So I've I've lost a lot of the information. I know the basics of the case, but it was a fascinating story. Fascinating because also it was so close to home. Yes. You know. Yes, 100%. In yeah. fact, I will say as I've, I've now read it and that was something that struck me is there were names I recognized, mm-hmm. obviously locations I recognized. Mm-hmm. It does feel like in our own backyard right. to me. And her book is incredibly well written mm-hmm. and well researched. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we discovered when you read it, she tells you in the opening, she spent something like six years researching this book. You can really tell. Ashley and I decided, you know, she's a person who lives within the state of Kentucky. She's mm-hmm. not too far away. So we contacted her and Anne D'Angelo has agreed to do an interview I with know, us. That's we exciting. Be- oh, we are beyond excited. So what's going to happen, guys, is in this first episode, we're going to lay the foundation. We're simply going to tell you what occurred in this very fascinating case. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to come back and next week you are going to get to hear us talk to Anne D'Angelo. She's going to talk to us about the research process and getting to speak to descendants yeah. of people who were involved in this case. And of course, we are going to get to ask her a lot of her insights, her yes. theories, and some of that behind the scene information that is so fascinating. Yes. So I'm going to play the part of the audience today because it has been so long since I have read the book and we've purposely had me not reread it before this episode so that I could be the audience and you are going to play the part of the narrator as you do so well. Okay. And and then by the time we talk to Anne, I will have read the book and be a little bit more informed. Yes. And I, I can't wait. This Reread is such the book, a, I should say. Yeah. Such a fascinating story. It really is. So as Anne does in her book, I'm going to start with the event that started everything and then we'll kind of go catalyst. back. The catalyst. Yes. So on the evening of November 6, 1936, a beautiful woman named Verna Gar Taylor lay dead in the ditch off Highway 22 near a farm owned by George and Nettie Baker, a single bullet hole pierced her dress over her left breast. She was wearing one shoe while the other shoe was positioned between her outstretched arm and body. In her left hand, she clasped a glove. The other glove was in the mud beside her feet. A large army pistol lay about four feet away on the side of the embankment. The man who had spent that entire day with her, her fiance, Henry Denhart, told everyone immediately it was a case of suicide. To the people who would soon start investigating Verna's death, it looked like murder. Right, right. The first thing you would think is, okay, the gun is laying four feet away. Unless there was a big recoil, how would it get four feet away from her? She's holding a glove in one hand. So how could you hold a heavy army pistol with one Mm -hmm. hand to shoot yourself? And why did one shoe come off? Mm -hmm. That's just immediately what I would think. Yes, absolutely. Those are some of the questions that they were asking as well. Mm -hmm. So now we'll back it up. Let's talk about these two people. Anne in her book referred to both of them as, quote, remarkable, but yet unusual. 
Okay. All right. Verna Gar Taylor was a 40-year-old widow who was raising two daughters on her own. She had married her childhood sweetheart, but he had died from complications due to acute appendicitis back in 1931, which left her alone to support her, her two kids, her mm-hmm. two daughters, mm-hmm. and to run their business, which was the Community Laundry in LaGrange, Kentucky. And this was during the Great Depression. Yeah. This woman did this job so well that when she died, she not only had no debt, she actually had something like $3,500 in her bank account. That's amazing. And she had just that day purchased some things for the upkeep of the building. This woman was accomplished. Which also goes against suicide because why would you buy stuff to better your business if you were getting ready to kill yourself? Great question. Mm. She was not only described as being a smart businesswoman, as we've just alluded, everybody called her friendly and likable. She was a valued member of the community who attended LaGrange Methodist Church, and she'd even taught Sunday school there for quite some time. And they described her as being very attractive. After her death, the press would often refer to her as the most beautiful woman in Oldham County, or sometimes they would say the most beautiful woman in two counties, Mm. referring to Oldham and Henry. Okay. So that's Verna. Okay. Now, Henry Denhart, on the other hand, was 60 years old. So he was 20 years older. And he had a long, very impressive career in law and politics. At different times in his life, he was an attorney, a judge, a military man, and a war hero, a state lieutenant governor. He won that in 1923, an adjutant general, and twice he even ran for governor. He did not win. But this was a man who had... He had a high position. Lots of high positions. Lots of power. Lots of power. Lots of status. Mm -hmm. Mm. and some wealth. Mm -hmm. He also had some great accomplishments to his name. I'm not going to list them all, but one of them was that he was instrumental in creating Kentucky's Highway Patrol. Oh. Yeah. And uh, he he also pushed for Mammoth Cave to become a national park. Well, that's cool. He did some great things. Mm -hmm. Now, on the flip side, (laughs) Henry Denhart, who was sometimes referred to as General Denhart or just the General, also had some controversy surrounding him. Yeah. He had handled a couple of different situations that really hurt his reputation and made him some enemies. One of those, for example, he was accused of mishandling the Floyd Collins case where that man was trapped in the cave and that got him some criticism. And then just a year before this incident with Verna's death, back in 1935, he had made a huge blunder when he led more than 700 National Guardsmen into Harlan County to address an alleged voting fraud scheme. He had ended up being indicted on the charge of criminal contempt and a warrant was issued for his arrest. But rather than turn himself in, he went on the run for a few days before he surrendered, but managed to get the governor, who was Governor LaFoon, to pardon him before the trial. So he got off and and, and basically he was pardoned. He was said to be fine, but it looked bad. Yeah, it does. That's bad PR. Yes, absolutely. And Anne speculated in the book that this was probably a factor. Why he didn't get governor? Well, actually, that led to him kind of stepping back from politics Mm. and retiring to Oldham County because that was 1935. And remember, this incident with Verna happens in 1936. Gotcha. So at the time, that he and Verna meet. He is single. He and his wife divorced in 1932. Speculation being that it was probably due to infidelities and heavy drinking. Mm. This was a a heavy drinker. So when he crossed paths with beautiful, intelligent businesswoman, Verna Gar Taylor, not surprising that she would catch his eye. Right. So how they met was Henry was on this farm, had 800 acres, and his sister Bertha actually lived there with him. She was older by five years and she was single. And so she kind of took it upon herself to run his household for him because he was an important man. Sure. And she didn't have her own family. Didn't have anything else to do. Right. But she found it a little bit isolated. Okay. Out there on that farm with just 
kind of 800 acres is pretty isolating so i think because she was you know a little lonely out there henry briefly considered the idea of renting a home closer to town now verna's mom owned a place that was for rent okay so henry contacts verna about this home he ends up ultimately declining he decides no he's not going to do that but when he calls verna to decline he makes some small talk with her and he asks how she's doing and she mentions you know she's doing fine just a little bit lonely mm-hmm. and he says he's lonely too mm-hmm. and they decide that two lonely people might want to hang out together that was his suggestion so she tells him he's welcome to come sit on the porch with her and that basically ends up being their first date okay it occurred on june 13th of 1936 so in J- june is the first date and then this tragedy happens in november it is fast oh yeah yes and in fact it's going to get faster because listen to this the two basically became a couple they were very uh-huh. interested in each other uh-huh. But the first month or so, they spent very little time in person together because she had this trip planned and it was long. So she's gone on that trip. And then about the time she's coming back, he has two weeks of military maneuvers to go to. So most of their communication there in the beginning was through letters or phone Mm. calls. And in fact, this is another thing I love about this book. It is so engaging. But Anne manages to find so many documents. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that she finds are some of these letters that Verna had written to the general. And so she got to have a firsthand look at how she was talking to him. Was she really interested in him? Right. How she sounded, what kind of personality she had. So it really was fascinating. I highly recommend you guys read this book. But the point is a lot of their communication was through these kind of distant methods. Now, Henry would later claim that he proposed to Verna and gave her an engagement ring in late August. Okay, that's a couple months later. Two months. Two months. That's fast. The family would dispute that she actually accepted his proposal. Okay. There never was a public announcement of their engagement. Uh She did have an engagement ring, though, and she had shown it to some people. Some of her friends had seen it, but rather than wear it, she usually kept it in a hanky tucked in the front of her dress somehow. Hmm. Now that could be because she works in the laundry. She doesn't want to get it messed up. Or if it's very expensive, she could be protecting it because she doesn't want to get it stolen or get robbed or, you know, something like that. Yeah. But it's, it's a little unusual. It is unusual. Yeah. The other thing is the more Henry came around, it seemed like the less Verna's daughters and brothers seemed to like him. Yeah. By the way, Verna had two sisters and three brothers. The sisters don't really play a role in the story, but these three brothers are they going do. to play a large role. Mm-hmm role mm-hmm. okay well you'll be hearing more about them later but later testimony from the two daughters and the housekeeper Bertie Bennett would tell of some arguments that went on between the couple overhearing a time that Verna asked Henry to leave mm. and even a threat that Henry made against Verna's brother Roy which Bertie Bennett the housekeeper heard and she even went and told Roy because she was concerned Ooh. Yeah. so it sounds like Henry looks real good on paper but in person he's kind of a mess I'm gonna say as a reader mm-hmm. i was not a henry fan yeah so on the fateful day of november 6 1936 verna and henry were scheduled to take a day trip to louisville and back not only because they were going to have this you know time together but also they had so many things packed into this day i don't know if this was like a thing back then where it was a really special deal if you were going to take a day trip you were just going to like schedule everything probably because it was so far away i tend to do that living further out mm-hmm. you do tend to schedule okay i'm going to go into town right and i'm going to get 
everything done on this day because it's such a hassle to drive such a far distance back and forth. Well, that makes sense. And yeah. I've, I've done that too, but mm-hmm. boy, did these people have a lot planned. But they were going to go back and forth for the social time also so Vernon could take care of some business. And what was interesting though was the night before, which by the way, there had been a little bit of bad weather, okay? But the driver for Verna's laundromat was this handsome younger man named Chester Wolfick. And through working for their family through their laundromat and also sometimes, you know, having to drop by the house to drop things off from the laundromat, Chester had become a family friend. Mm -hmm. At one point, he even gave music lessons to one of the daughters. Mm -hmm. So the night before, as Henry's driving, I'm assuming, towards home, he happens to pass Verna in the vehicle with Chester. Mm -hmm. And Henry stops. They stop their cars to speak. Now, not sure if this is what, you know, instigated the fact that he ended up renting a hotel room and staying in LaGrange that night Mm -hmm. rather than go to his home that was only five miles away. Mm -hmm. But it seemed odd. It was something that Now, did she ride in the car with him a lot or was this unusual? I think sometimes she would because of their laundromat, their laundry business, you know, maybe. So there was nothing untoward. No, but that is something that's going to come up. Okay. Questions of whether there was more to their relationship. Because you said he's about 20 and she's 40? He was younger, to be honest. I don't remember exactly how much younger, but it's a significant bit. Okay, because I'm thinking he might have been interested in one of her daughters. No, I think he's he's older than 20. Oh, okay. So Henry said that the reason he ended up staying in town was because the weather was bad. But Anne does note in her book, Dark Highway, that this is a frugal guy. And it does make you wonder... I bet he just wanted to keep an eye on her. Right. Mm -hmm. Was this jealousy? Was Mm -hmm. it, you know, what's the deal? And, you know, if the weather was that bad, then why did they still go on the trip the next day. Right. Right. But anyway, the next morning, November 6th, Verna and Henry leave for their day trip and she did wear her engagement ring. A large number of people, including, you know, her daughters, family members, friends would end up interacting with Verna that that day, on that day, whether it was before she left or during the course of the day. And all of them would later say that she seemed cheerful and friendly. After Verna's death, the investigators would have to go back and try to retrace their movements for the entire day, which proved pretty frustrating because they did a lot. Mm -hmm. And they ended up with a couple of things that were really confusing, hard to explain. And they also found at least one really large gap. So I'm going to talk you through their day and let you make of it what you will. All right. Remember, read the book because it's so good and it's so detailed. I'm giving you this little abbreviated version. Yes, of course. Okay. And I tried really hard to be accurate, but for Forgive me if I mess up any details. We forgive you everything. Thank you. So at some point, Verna picked up an item from a friend that she was going to return for her while she was on her trip. Mm-hmm. That woman later did receive credit indicating that Verna had accomplished had done that task. That. Okay. So we know that. At some point that morning, the couple had a flat tire that was addressed. Verna was supposed to have a bridge luncheon with her cousin, Bess Lee, but Henry ended up calling for Verna to beg off, saying that she had a headache. And on the phone, he also mentioned a few different times that he felt sick. This was a thing that came up that he felt sick. He didn't feel Mm good. Okay. The two had some lunch together and I'm pretty sure I recall it might have been at the Sealbach Hotel in their dining room. Okay. Okay. Then in the early afternoon, Verna separated to go take care of some business. And at least one of those was a big meeting related to some business with her laundromat. Okay. During the time they were separated, Henry would later testify that he went to get a shave at a nearby hotel, then hung out in the Pendennis Club for a while. That was around 2.30 to 3. Then went back to the seal box to talk to some friends and then to the Kentucky Hotel. Here's one of the points of confusion. And we never really get this cleared up, by the way. Around 4 p.m., Henry rented a room at the Kentucky Hotel in downtown Louisville, but for less than an hour. Did he need a nap? Don't know. 
Or did he have a dalliance? Don't know. Okay. And it's interesting. I'm going to jump ahead. They never ask him about this at the trial. Why not? I think because they were afraid he might say something disparaging about Verna. That it might give him oh. an opening to insinuate oh, that, maybe that they, they had, a had something going on. I see. However, a family friend of Verna's, who would actually end up being an attorney on the prosecution team against Henry at the trial, his name was Ballard Clark, happened to pass Verna and chat with her on that day around 4.15 to 4.30 So she wasn't in the room. Doesn't seem likely she was in that room with him Mm -hmm. if she was passing this guy at that time. Okay. But this is just such a confusing point because Anne mentions again, why would a frugal man like this rent a hotel room for only a very short time in the middle of a day trip? You know, it's... Yeah, it seems odd. mm -hmm. So that's going to come up quite a bit. The other thing that she brings up is why would a man who had said he was so sick be doing all this visiting and socializing and walking around during this time period spreading his germs (laughs) (laughs) giving a gift to everybody so so lots of confusion there right Right. now they were seen together in another restaurant later for dinner i did not record the exact time they arrived but i did note in my notes that they left the restaurant around 6 30 p.m during this time that they were having dinner they were overheard i believe it was by the server if i recall correctly calling to bow out of a commitment they were supposed to chaperone at the dance of one of verna's daughters that night all right but the excuse was her headache and then other than that the person observing them said seemed okay there were some quiet moments as they were eating their food but nothing that really stood Mm -hmm. out as being overly concerning okay now one other thing that happened was henry did do some drinking he had he would testify later that he had purchased some alcohol while he was on the day trip and he said that Verna was fine with this that she seemed to understand that he you know he wasn't feeling well and he had a reason to be upset so she was okay with him getting some liquor but she was a teetotaler yeah so wondering probably about that mm-hmm. and he did have a glass he borrowed a glass while he was having his dinner to drink some and Verna after this was seen driving their car oh so he was have... probably too intoxicated to drive it's a possibility could have been the drinking could have been that he was sick who knows mm-hmm. but she was seen but driving. she had a headache so she's also not feeling good right mm-hmm. and last little note here before we get to kind of the the big moment the tragedy mm-hmm. they left the restaurant around 6 30 which is significant because the next person to see verna was barney browning at his service station which was around 8 45 to 9 p.m so there's one of those big big gaps. gap that's a big gap yeah. three hours is a lot and they don't know what happened. Hmm. Yeah. I guess it was maybe more like two, but still, mm-hmm. it's unaccounted for time. All right. This leads us into the tragedy. So what happened was Barney Browning would later testify that Verna showed up at his service station just before closing time saying that their car was stalled. They had left it over at the nearby schoolhouse. And so they pushed the car to the service station where he was going to try to see if he could fix it. Mm-hmm. While they're pushing, Henry is sitting in the car beside Verna who is steering and Barney Browning actually asked why is he why isn't he helping and the answer was he's sick Mm. okay now they tried some things couldn't get it to start so they tried the strategy of pushing the car down a you know you push it down a hill to see if you can kind of jump start it get it going but it stopped again in the middle of the road and Verna ends up flagging down a car driven by a man named J.B. Hundley Mr. Browning he's kind of out of it now he goes back to a service station they were closing up okay so now she's here with this man J.B. Hundley and another guy who lived nearby named George Baker he's the one who owns the farm 
he also stopped to see what's going on, see if he could help. Okay. The service station's closed. I think they decided it was probably a battery issue. So with it being so late, they didn't want to leave the car in the middle of the road. George Baker suggested they push the car to his nearby driveway and then use J.B. Hunley's car to run over to LaGrange to get a battery. Okay. George actually kind of goes off into his house thinking that all three of them had left to go get the battery. But Hunley later testified that he asked the couple if they wanted to ride along and someone said, no, we'll just wait. But because of the the car was noisy, he couldn't tell if it was a male or female voice. Well, you just asked the guy to get a battery for you and you didn't go with him Isn't to get the odd? battery? I thought the same thing. Yeah. Like, hey, I don't know you. We just flagged you down. Would you go run and get a battery for us and come I... right back? Do you want to go with me? Nah, you just do it by yourself. I thought what? that was kind of odd, too. That is really weird. Yeah. So George's dog starts barking, which makes him look outside and he sees Henry Denhart walking by really quickly and Henry looks over and sees him and he asks if he has a phone. Now, this is a little odd because at some point when they'd been together, somebody had already asked George if he had a phone and he had said he didn't have one. So it was Like kinda... in his house, not a cell phone. Right, For right. us, we'd go, yes. you, got a, you got a cell phone I can use? <laughs> yeah. He meant in his in, home. In his house, exactly. Yeah. So it was kind of like, why is he asking me that again? You know, but he saw Henry go back to his car and then about 10 or 15 minutes later, he noticed the headlights of a car driving past and then about five minutes later, he heard a very loud gunshot. Now, by the way, I should say one of the points that comes out a couple different times in this book is that George is kind of just a great guy, but kind of laid back about his details. So not sure how accurate his estimates are of distance or time. Okay. But but this is what he's saying. Again, he heard that really loud shot. And then as he started to walk outside towards Henry, who was in the car, he heard a second, much softer shot that he described as sounding almost like it was from a pop gun. And he commented on that second shot to Henry, who said something about it being fearful. And George noticed that because he thought it was funny. Like the first shot was so loud. And here's this one that was kind of like Uh really soft. And he was like, why would he call that fearful? And you know, Nettie, the wife later testified, she never even heard the second shot. Now, Verna was not in the car. So George is out here with Henry at the car and at the end of his driveway. Yes, parked in his driveway. And I can't recall if George asked where Verna was, to be honest. But what I do know is that not long after J.B. Hunley comes back and he has brought with them this man named C.E. Cuba Shaver, who is a LaGrange mechanic. Okay. And Henry tells the men, you know, hey, will you go look for Verna? She's gone up the road to get her glove. They left to do that. Well, These are really nice guys that just seem to do whatever they? they're told. <laughs> well, and it makes Random me wonder, strangers. Are they really nice guys or was like Henry, Henry scary around his power? I was it like know. he expected to be, you know, know, do whatever? I, I don't know. But they go. He stays. He doesn't go with them. Hmm. And they come back saying they didn't see the lady. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they go ahead and start working on the car. And Henry just stands and watches them calmly. But a couple of times he comments she was the final woman I ever knew. Past tense. Past tense. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when they get the battery fixed, it was J.B. Hundley who said, let's go see about the lady. Now this time, Henry did follow the two guys as they head off to go look for her. And it was J.B. Hundley who actually saw Verna Aww. in the ditch. George Baker had been checking on his wife, so he comes up behind them, but he ends mm-hmm. up joining too. Now, as we said earlier, she was laying in that ditch and she had had that bullet hole through her dress right above her left breast. And of course, we talked about how she was positioned. Henry said, ain't that awful, but never went over to her. He did not approach. He didn't mm-hmm. go to the ditch. He mm-hmm. just he just reacted to them saying, she's here. Look what's, you know, they they said what had happened. And 
his reaction again. He comments, but he doesn't go to her ever. He just watched from where he was standing on the highway. J.B. Hunley goes to LaGrange for help. George Baker's now a little concerned about his wife. He doesn't want to leave her alone, so he's going to go check on Nettie. And Henry and the mechanic end up just kind of following George Baker, which means they left Verna alone in the ditch. They don't even know if she's still alive or not, right? Well, I think they could tell she was. Oh, okay. But at the same time, this poor guy. This is his fiance. Yeah. This is, yes. I'm thinking of Hunley, who's just like, I just, I just was going for a drive, man. Right. And I'm in this thing and I don't. What mm, have I got? What have I got myself into? Well, as they're walking, the mechanic notices some keys and a flashlight laying on the side of the road. And Henry says, oh yeah, those are mine. And then not long after, funeral director, a man named Keatley, his last name is Keatley. He arrives. They all ride back out to Verna. And Henry asks if Verna is wearing the engagement ring. He wants to know that. And he also makes a comment about the brothers. He's concerned about how the brothers are going to react. But basically what everybody remembers is he just kept standing around watching everybody. Mm. He never seemed to show any grief and he never went to look at Verna or, you know, approach her in any way. At one point, Henry commented, you know, I couldn't have killed her. I was too crazy about her. And another important comment that was made that would come back up later in the trial was George Baker said, Mr. Denhart couldn't have killed that woman because I was with him when that last shot was fired. Mm -hmm. At some point, this coroner, Coroner Ricketts had shown up and he has to go over, you know, head over to tell Verna's family the tragic news while Henry is driven home by Cuba Shaver and a friend who's now in the car with him. But the important part is that as Henry is getting out of the vehicle, they notice he has Verna's purse with him, which Mm. he zips into his briefcase before Mm. he gets out of the vehicle. That's suspect. We have a whole lot more to discuss, (laughs) but why don't we take a break before Uh, we do that? If we must. All right. Season three of Scandal Water is finally upon us, and with it, lots of new and exciting opportunities are brewing in the background. We'll keep you posted as each new venture goes live. But in the meantime, we wanted to say thank you to those of you who have shared the podcast, left reviews, and supported us on buymeacoffee.com. You are the reason we are able to keep telling these stories, and we're so, so grateful. So cheers to you, and here's to a fantastic season three with many more fun and peculiar stories about the stage, screen, and everything in between. And we are back. This case is so fascinating. All right, so here's what happens next. Though the details would end up changing, Henry's story in the beginning is that Verna shot herself because she became increasingly depressed and despondent through the course of the day. The reason being that... She was with him? Oh, whoop, (laughs) whoop, whoop. (laughs) The reason being that her daughters did not approve of their relationship. And this was upsetting her. Now. So she's going to kill herself because her daughters don't approve. And that doesn't make any sense. I think the implication is that she is just so crazy about him and she's afraid that he she's wishes, not He wishes. Henry right. wishes. Okay, <laughs> I'm sorry. Sorry. Verna's brothers and different members of the law enforcement team start digging into a few things and immediately begin to question this mm-hmm. story of suicide. I'm not going to, I can't give you all the details, but I'll hit a few things. The next day, Verna's brother Jack and Sheriff Briggs go back to the site where Verna was found Mm -hmm. and they see some heel marks in the ditch and they also remembered that her shoes were covered
covered in mud. Mm -hmm. They also notice on the pavement something that looks like blood. So they end up taking up this chunk of pavement and taking it with them for evidence. That's amazing. Also, a group of of several men, this law enforcement team, they go to talk to Henry the next day. He is drunk. He became belligerent when he could tell that they were kind of questioning his story. Yeah. They end up having to restrain him and read him the formal summons to an inquest into Berna's death. Yeah. So he's just acting funny. That is something that came up. He's 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 not acting like this grieving fiance. Right. Everything is just kind of weird. Right. Now they end up bringing in this man to help investigate. His name is Police Sergeant John Mesmer from Louisville, and he was skilled in doing investigations. He agreed to help them for no extra pay. He said, "I'm already being paid a salary. I'll help you." But he would end up working for the prosecution team to kind of try to find some evidence. Yeah. You know, it's 1936. He was kind of on the cutting edge a Mm -hmm. little bit Mm -hmm. with trying to do. They didn't have forensic. They didn't have the things we have today. Yeah, I'm thinking of I'm thinking of Elliot Ness. You know, he introduced all the forensics and things like that. I'm thinking it's this is around that same time. Exactly. Yeah. Well, this guy was was he was on it so they end up getting him to well he probably was one who suggested it but he did a paraffin test on verna's hands while she was laying in state mm-hmm. on in her home mm-hmm. before she was buried to see you know if she fired the gun yeah right there would be evidence th- right now the test came back negative but later they would question that test because her hands had been washed after embalming uh, the another thing that they did was they knew they wanted to get a paraffin test on henry's hands yeah so they go over to his house again and he does agree to the test which does end up being positive but you know there are always like reasons given of course while they're there one of the investigators happens to say hey were you wearing an overcoat the night that you were on this day trip you know that all this happened and he's like yeah and they said do you mind if we take it he lets them take his coat in fact he's like i just might need somebody else they they were gonna like swap out coats he he thinks that it's perfectly fine Uh as they're leaving they see what looks like blood on this coat and they end up showing it to him and he is shocked but the other thing they get is while they're there they go ahead and get Verna's purse from him which he admits he had okay Okay. so these are some pieces of evidence that their people are gathering right at the inquest Henry was presented with a warrant for his arrest but he was able to make bail with the help of a close friend who paid the money Mm -hmm. something interesting that happened though I'm kind of hitting highlights not sure exactly who overheard it whether it was a Gar brother or maybe Maybe it was one of the attorneys, but somehow this team learned or overheard that the defense team was kind of bouncing around the idea of exhuming Verna's body and doing an autopsy. And they decided they were going to do it first <gasps> without telling the defense team. This is, I'm telling you. This Wait, is the a, prosecution? Yes. The Gar brothers and the prosecution team. Exhumed her? This is, I'm telling you, there are so many surprising things in this, fascinating things. The same night of the inquest in the dark out there with like lights and things you know kind of just using their I don't know if it was a lantern light or whatever uh-huh. but they are out in the graveyard they dig up her body what did they want they had to go do an autopsy on her oh. and to, what, what, to what point what were they trying to, we know how she passed well there were all kinds of pieces of evidence they had not yet looked for so I'll oh. give you a few highlights of what they did find out okay but now just to make this clear it was breaking protocol because technically the defense team should have had a representative yeah, they there. Have, yes. But these guys did this in secret. Yeah. From the beginning, this was very 
obviously very emotional. There was tension, right? Yeah. There was tension. So a couple of things the autopsy report did find, they were able to confirm that it was one bullet hole that had entered the front and exited the back and it gave them the opportunity to look at like angles and tra- trajectory mm. oh, sure. and that type yeah, yeah. of thing. Yeah. They found a bruise on her right inner thigh, which looked recent. Mm. Okay. They saw slight discoloration around the front bullet wound, which would end up leading to some controversy because remember they're trying to th- figure out was it her yeah which would have been up close or is this somebody from a further, further distance, distance who yeah. had made the shot right and they even took pieces of skin from around the wound sites that they sent off to a L pathologist professor guy to look at so these are some of the things that they looked at they also I can't remember if it was during the autopsy or if it was when they first brought Verna in but they had noticed it was unusual that her slip she had a tear in it mm. everything else was just kind of immaculate she was so well mm-hmm. put together mm-hmm. and so it struck them as odd that she would have this tear in mm-hmm. her slip mm. so some things like this okay. are, are coming to light making people wonder things yeah all right now the examining trial was held about two weeks after verna's death that is fast it is fast and it was at the newcastle courthouse in henry county the place was packed and just to be clear sentiment is very much against Henry Denhart. In fact, at one point, one of the team members from the prosecution, his name was Jimmy Thomas, he was he was very dramatic and very fiery. And he made a comment that in his experience, the only man charged with murder who didn't go to jail was Henry Denhart. The crowd broke out into such loud cheering and applause that they had to be admonished by the judge. Whoa. I mean, this was a very, very... Beloved woman. Beloved and woman. And he was definitely an outsider. Exactly. And it did not look good. Now, on a related side note that I just found interesting, and shared so many fascinating details through the course of her book, Dark Highway, but... But even Henry's lawyers struggled sometimes with Henry. He was he not would, likable. He wouldn't pay his lawyers. Aww. He haggled with them. They yeah. had done so much work for him and, and he wouldn't be paying them. They had to fight him to get their money. Sometimes they had to fight against him because he wanted to control everything. Yeah. He wanted to tell them what to say or here's yeah. what we're going to do. They had to watch him because he kept trying to to talk. To He would make these self-serving comments that weren't helping him. No. So they were trying to keep get him to keep his mouth quiet. And this is just... An interesting, I think, side note. One of those lawyers who was a very close friend of his, who actually very much believed in his innocence, was John Marshall Berry from mm. Newcastle, mm-hmm. who is the father of... Wendell Berry. Yes. Yes. I thought that was fascinating. That is. Yes. And there's a tie with his son, John Berry Jr., who has now passed, but we used his law office for the Hepburn Girls. <gasps> Yes, we used his upstairs law office in downtown Newcastle when we were, you know, scouting locations and everything. We used his his office for one of the scenes. Very cool. He was a very nice guy. Oh, I love that. After the examining trial, Henry was again released on bond, again paid by a friend until the grand jury trial would be heard in January, at which point he was charged with the crime of willful murder. So then that means the next step is the actual trial. Okay. Well, as luck would have it, this is just the craziest stuff. The Great Flood happens. And so his trial ends up being delayed because everybody's affected (sighs) by the flood. The flood. Hmm. It is craziness. Well, this is a comment that Anne made, which I thought was very true and insightful. She commented that she felt the delay really helped the defense team more than the prosecution. Remember, the prosecution had everything going for them, including a lot of emotion. Yes, a lot of emotion. Public sentiment. Public sentiment. But this defense team had some 
sharp people on it. She called them the dream team at one point. By the way, somewhere around in here, I believe Henry found time to go on vacation to Florida. Whatever, Henry. Right. And also sometime before the trial, Henry found time to write or dictate a 33-page memorandum telling his side of the story. And it contained a lot of statements that Anne described as, quote, self-serving and self-aggrandizing. Now, we're going to ask Anne to tell us more about this document because I think it was kind of a big deal. But just to briefly share this, it really painted, Henry really painted an unflattering picture of Verna as he's trying to tell his side of the story, accusing her of being very jealous, talks about how she's just so into him that, you know, that's part of why she's so despondent and suicidal. And he also makes these accusations or, or at least hints that she'd had a love affair with Chester Woolfolk, which... He does straight up say she revealed to him on the day trip and that's what made him feel so upset and mm-hmm. so sick and also why she becomes so despondent. At different times, it was she was... We a, call that projection, kids. <laughs> <laughs> that's a term we call projection. Oh, uh, I, I don't even know if I have a term for it. Okay. But it, yeah, but... At different times, she, in some versions, she suggested that they go get married right then that Mm, day and and mm -mm. was upset because he didn't want to. Mm -hmm. He definitely said in this document that she had suggested they make a suicide pact. Oh, no. And and at one point, she asked him, you know, she was suicidal. She, She asked him to help her write a legally correct suicide note. So many things. Mm -hmm. So many things. And also somewhere in there, his explanation for the blood on the coat came out. It was because he had this cut on his finger that was bleeding. Okay. All right. Now, the trial was held at the Henry County Courthouse. The judge did not change the venue as the defense team wanted to happen that was probably not smart but yeah well and again read the book but it's crazy how Anne described it as being like a circus and it sounded like yeah, it was that's not i mean it's not proud. good for the defense yeah for to not change the venue well some key things just a few highlights the prosecution was really honed in on trying to show that Verna was not in a depressed state. Right. And they also used their forensic attempts to prove their case. For example, in addition to the paraffin, one of the other things that they did was this Sergeant Messmer and some doctors and, and that pathologist, they had taken a pig to a rifle range. Aww. The pig had had its, dra- its blood drained from it. It had been washed and they draped pieces of Verna's slip and her dress over the pig mm-hmm. and then they shot it from lots of different distances so they could measure and make mm-hmm. observational notes about the how I mean I know it's, it's sad. sad but you like this is yeah, they're, trying. they're trying they're trying yeah they also used a sparkograph machine that measured gas emitted from a gun when it was shot they were they were really trying to to use hard evidence mm-hmm. to show that Verna could not have killed herself and they also tried to introduce this fountain pen gun that the general carried as a possible source for that second second shot right that was heard by George Baker. Now, one other thing they brought out was that bruise on Verna's inner thigh and the tear in her slip. Yeah. Yeah. The defense team, some of their key strategies were hinting that something might be up with Chester Wolfuck. Oh. And... They now they didn't they didn't come right out, but there were hints. Oh. They were they were kind of planting some yeah. ideas. They really went after Mr. Mesmer's forensics, his competence. They tried to discredit him, anything he'd done, like his paraffin test. They were trying to say that they were not valid. They brought in their own experts who had done a similar test to the one that the other guys had done with the pig, and they had different results, mm-hmm. obviously. Mm-hmm. They had witnesses who said he really had 
Henry had really cut his finger. He was a bleeder and, you know, it had to be treated by a doctor. They also said, you know, even the, the way the blood was on the coat wouldn't even look consistent with how the blood would look if he had either dragged Verna's body mm-hmm. after she was wounded or the way her wound had occurred. Like, that's that's not how the blood would have been expressed to come out on somebody's coat. So they're basically trying to address all these other points. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, the defense also put Henry on the stand. So this Why is... Why in the world? Well, I'm sure he wanted to be, but they also let him tell a lot of his version of what happened, of course. And of course, this is where he had the chance to explain the timeline for the day, which is how we knew some of those things, such as what he supposedly did during that window of time. Right. You know, and... And again, he did not outright accuse Verna of having an affair with Chester, but during this trial, he did mention that she had offered to give the ring back to him, but he had said no, and that she had admitted that Chester was in love with her and was jealous of her relationship with Henry. And this supposedly now, rather than the daughters, remember Mm -hmm. this first version was the daughters were upset. Now she's despondent because Chester has confessed his love and he's so jealous of her relationship with Henry and it's just causing this angst. And that's why she was suicidal in this version. Also sounds like projection. It makes you wonder, doesn't yeah. it? Well, to kind of wrap this trial part up, in Dark Highway, here's a quote from Anne's book where she talks about how the prosecutor H.B. Kinsolving ended his closing statement. He scoffed at the idea that Verna committed suicide and told the jury that the only thing to support it was the general's own statement. Mm-hmm. Quote, he admits she offered to give his ring back that day. I tell you, he killed her in anger when she told him she was going to break off with him end quote so that's ken solving's take on that i just wanted to share that now here's the interesting part it's all been interesting there's more (laughs) (laughs) you would have thought that this trial would have ended with henry being convicted of murder yeah the jury was deadlocked i am flabbergasted yeah yeah and they were too and they i think it speaks to the strength of the defense team yes they were the dream team yes they were amazing henry thought this was a huge victory because public opinion was so strongly against him so he felt like a second trial he's gonna get off yeah if if he could get if their team could get a deadlock from the first trial by the time a second one rolls around he he's He's gonna get off really a chance to get off yeah okay so here's what happened next now they're waiting for the new trial in the meantime this is fascinating <laughs> the general is charged with the murder of another woman what named patricia wilson okay i am holding off because i want to hear Anne tell us about this yes but i'm going to give you just this really tiny short version this alleged murder by Henry would have occurred before he met Verna. Okay. The accusation, which was filed by the sister of the woman, Patricia Wilson's sister, was that on the night of July 14th or the early hours of July 15th, 1936, Henry Denhart assaulted and beat Patricia Wilson, causing her to fall into an elevator shaft at the Sealbach Hotel and die. Oh my gosh. The petition requested $75,000 for what they labeled a wrongful death action. Now the implication was... This is about a month after he's met her, right? He oh, met her in June. That is so true. Yeah. And this was this would be while she's gone. That's right. Yeah. That is so right. I hadn't put the timeline together. Mm-hmm. That is so true. The implication, this might have been from the people involved in the situation. They, I think they were trying to portray 
portray Patricia as kind of a party girl who was at the Seelbach because these prominent wealthy men were there and she was like socializing with them. But if you've ever heard the legend of the lady in blue from the Seelbach Hotel, this is her. This is her? I have not heard that. We're going to ask Anne so much more about this. Okay, okay, okay. But the general denies any involvement, but he's furious about this because remember, he's still heading into another trial for the murder of Verna. Right, he doesn't want, yeah. So he says he was on his farm that night that Patricia died, but he's outraged. He does file a countersuit because he's so mad and he wants to make a statement. And he blames his political opponents and the Gar brothers and their lawyers for conspiring against him. He thinks all of this lawsuit is because they're trying to hurt his Mm -hmm. good name and set him up Mm -hmm. to to lose this next case, right? Now, again, so think about how the the brothers are feeling. I mean, this the feelings, fear, the tension between these people is just monumental. They despise each other. So they're heading into the second trial. And on top of of the 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 really negative feelings between the two sides there's there's other things that are fueling it there's a rumor out there that Henry's defense team may be bringing in some new evidence that's going to make Verna look bad. Oh, Now, we don't know whether that would be making accusations about a relationship with Chester Wolfe or, uh-huh. or saying something about, you know, them having a relationship and using that hotel. Who knows? Right, right. But, but the rumor is that something negative might be brought in about Verna. That's obviously not going to go over well. No, but shouldn't the prosecution find out about it in discovery well, when well, they be told? They did know this is something that Anne mentioned in the book is that Henry had sent a letter. Now, I don't know if they knew this, but we know that Henry had sent a letter to John Barry asking him to subpoena some laundry employees. Oh, so, so he's wanting to subpoena Chester, I bet. It might have been Chester is what we suspect now. I don't know that the brothers would have known that back then. So on September 20th, the night before the second trial was to start, Henry met with his lawyers in Shelbyville at the Armstrong Hotel to prepare. Yes. Now, this meeting was very widely known because different members had mentioned it. Some of the lawyers had even mentioned it to reporters. So this was this was something that was out there. Now, this is interesting. On the prosecution side, Detective Mesmer had proposed sending someone with a dictaphone to try to eavesdrop <gasps> on the defense meeting. Guys! I know! He checked in with <laughs> Ken Solving about it, the prosecutor, and Prosecutor Ken Solving was like, uh-uh. But he didn't tell Mesmer to stop. So he actually sent this guy named George Blades over, and he rented a room right beside Henry Denhart's room in the Armstrong Hotel, and he set up his equipment, but reportedly missed the meeting okay what now the defense team had their dinner at the hotel they were in the hotel dining room and then they did have their conference in the hotel room and after this is all over two of the attorneys leave and Rhodes Myers and Henry Denhart decide that they're gonna walk to a nearby restaurant to get a beer Okay. All right. Meanwhile, over here with the Gar brothers, Roy had picked up his two brothers and they were going to go visit Prosecutor Ken Solving. Again, it's the night before the trial. Sure. Just to check in are yeah. all of our ducks in a row. Yeah. So actually, Roy's the only one who went in to talk to the prosecutor. He was kind of always the leader. Okay. And Is he the oldest? He Well, the oldest was Doc, but Doc had basically, they think it was something like PTSD from okay. the war and he had had some mental issues, issues mental okay. health issues. And Jack 
Jack was the youngest, so Roy was kind of the leader. Okay. So Roy goes in and he talks to the lawyer for like 30 minutes while his brothers wait in the car. And then the three of them decided they were going to go visit their friend, Ryan Blakemore, who also actually happened to be related to them through Verna's marriage. And Ryan Blakemore had a grocery called the Blakemore Grocery which happened to be located next to the Armstrong Hotel in Shelbyville. Okay. So the brothers are now in Shelbyville, and they go into the grocery chat with you know how there are men sitting around yeah. talking in the yeah. grocery all the time so they chat with a little group of men ryan comes in they chat with him and then they leave but after they'd already left roy said oops you know i never asked ryan if he's coming to the trial tomorrow i want to go back and check in with him so they come back around they park on a side street and jack waits in the car while roy and doc head to go back into the Blakemore grocery. Just so happens that this is the same time that General Denhart, Henry, and Rhodes Myers are returning from their beer. Yeah. So they're coming towards the hotel, and about the time they reach the middle of Main Street, these brothers have been coming around from the side, and they're also heading towards the building that's right there by the hotel. Yeah. And suddenly Rhodes Myers yells, there are the Garbrands. Others. Now, remember, both parties are terrified of each other. Yeah. On the one hand, Henry is known for having this huge collection of firearms. He's always, they, everybody thinks he's always armed, armed and, ready. and ready to go. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, the brothers, at least two of them, carry firearms frequently. And the, the tension is high. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of hatred here. When the general heard Rhodes Meyer yell that, he immediately panicked. He starts running, zigzagging. Which is what you're supposed to do. Right towards the hotel entrance which in effect is toward them yes yes that is exactly right now roy would later say quote he come right quartering towards me i looked up and the first thing i saw was denhart the next thing i saw going for his hip right hip pocket and by god i went for mine pretty fast and when i got my gun i shot twice i was scared and i saw him and it scared me i saw that dead sister of mine when i saw him i went to shooting i emptied my gun before I quit shooting. Wow. Now, Doc was also shooting, okay? Yeah. Doc, he, of course, also later said that he saw Denhart make a motion like he was preparing to draw a gun. So yeah. he had started shooting too. Yeah. Both of them were firing at Henry as Henry is staggering trying to get through that front door of the yeah. hotel. Yeah. Well, Rhodes Myers had started to run away, but he stopped when he saw Henry collapse in front of the hotel, basically in the doorway. And his testimony would be that... In terms of himself, he saw Doc aiming a gun at him and he started begging Doc not to shoot him. Reportedly, he said, don't shoot me. I'm just the lawyer. <laughs> and Doc made some kind of comment about how, you know, Myers had defended the man who killed his sister. But Roy came over, grabbed Doc's arm, and he did not shoot Rhodes Myers. So okay. he lived to tell the story. Okay. okay. Now, the guards headed off to turn themselves in. Harry Flood owned the hotel. He was the first one to reach Henry. So he had some testimony. There happened to be some other people who were around who would give testimony to. We'll come back to them in a second. Okay. George Blades did still have his dictaphone running when the shots happened. Okay. Henry was shot twice in the back and once in the back of his skull. And that's important. The shots were from the back. Right. Okay. By the way, he also had a letter from his ex-wife in his pocket. Now, here's what happened. The brothers were treated like 
folk heroes. I bet. Everybody was on their side. Yeah. In jail, people sent some food. Everybody wanted to interview them and take their pictures. And a strong team. I would just say it would be two of the three brothers, right? The third one was still in the car, supposedly? Well, at first, all three of them were, oh. were taken in. Okay. But, but you are you make an excellent point, and we're going to come back to that. Okay. Okay. A strong team stepped up to defend them. And the prosecutor, who had been on their side in the case, you know, where their sister's involved, he's supposed to be up now to prosecute them because he's the prosecutor oh. and he was like uh-uh I'm I not doing I it I can't do this so they brought in another guy from a kind of a an outside guy that they referred to as the foreigner um, <laughs> <laughs> because he wasn't from he wasn't a local yeah but Hubert Meredith agreed to step in and he's thinking this this Hubert Meredith guy from the beginning his assumption was the Gar brothers had ambushed Denhart uh-huh. okay at the examining trial which was at the Shelby County Courthouse they heard it all but they did let the brothers go home for a week on bond until the grand jury met because obviously there was evidence that they may have committed murder right so then they came back for the grand jury you know meeting and that's when they were given an indictment for willful murder and this was against all three brothers Mm. but it was almost deadlocked like they had to push for them to actually make a decision because the public was for so much on their side yes Mm. so they were released on bond again until the trial which occurred within a month this is fast justice back then it really was now in the meanwhile doc who again had all these you know mental health issues and even some physical issues that he had been dealing with. He had a breakdown. He had to be taken under doctor's care. So from this point on, he basically drops out of this. Like now we've got Jack and Roy who are going in to face this trial. Okay. Now the basic argument is, did the brothers ambush Henry Denhart and cold-bloodedly murder him? Or was it really a chance meeting and self-defense? Right. Which is what they're claiming. Right. Okay. Now the prosecution is relying on testimony from different people, but a key one is Rhodes Myers because what Rhodes Myers said is that a lot of the gunshots happened like you know bam 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 but then there's a long pause and then Roy he says walked up to Henry and fired the kill shot right into Henry's head mm. now Roy of course remember he's saying he was I saw him go for the yep so they both reach for the gun <laughs> Chicago reference mm-hmm. <laughs> So to support Roy's claim that he thought Henry was getting ready to draw a gun, there was another patrolman who had happened to kind of come upon the scene as it was playing out. And he testified that Henry Denhart had a handkerchief in his right hand when he was laying in the doorway. So he had gone for a handkerchief? Well, Rhodes Myers had said he did not have a handkerchief as they were coming back from the beer. So maybe the idea is maybe at some point he pulled, I don't know why you would pull out a handkerchief, but he had pulled this handkerchief and that's why the the brothers thought he was getting ready to shoot them. Also, witness accounts did not bear up. The story that Rhodes Myers had told about there being kind of this pause in the gunshots before the final shot was made. They just didn't hear that. In fact, they also had the son of the owner had been working the front desk at the hotel, so he was kind of there right in the doorway, and he said he did not see anybody approach Henry's body after he fell. The other interesting thing that happened during this trial was that people openly, I guess the right word might be condemned, Henry's character. Mm. Two of Verna's employees testified about overhearing him make angry comments and threats related to Verna's brothers and even her girls. There was a friend he knew through the military. Well, I don't know if he was a friend, but someone he knew through the military named Brigadier General Carter, who said, quote, I knew him as one of the most violent, unscrupulous, dominant 
domineering and brutal men I've ever known in my life. Wow. Other officers spoke openly about how overbearing he was and how he always carried a gun. So people, now that he was gone... They were were telling what they really thought about him. They were very openly disparaging him. Wow. Absolutely. And to follow up on this, another interesting side note is this trial was so sensational and the brothers so popular that D.W. Griffith came one day with his young wife. And just to follow that out, he actually, for a time, lived on the same street as Verna. He was from... That, yeah. that area for a while. Wow. Yeah. So the jury took about an hour and 15 minutes and one ballot before they reached their verdict. You want to guess what it was? I'm going to say not guilty. <laughs> not guilty. Yeah. And this occurred 15 days short of the first anniversary of Verna's death. Wow. Yeah. So I didn't mention this, but before the verdict had come down, they had already dismissed Jack from it because he... Oh, yeah. He, he was not, in the car. And he wasn't even armed. Okay. Like, he didn't even have a gun with him that day. Okay. So, but he stayed by his brother's side. Good. He said, I want to stay and, and, you know, follow this out. So he stayed by Roy's side until the verdict was read. Now, afterwards, in 1938, Doc's charges were also dismissed. His mental and physical health had just continued to decline. So, mm-hmm. and... You know, they, they knew they weren't going to convict him if his brother had gotten off. Right. So right. they let it go. But he caused a stir when in December of that same year, he proposed a new theory okay. about Verna's death that did not align with just Henry killed her. Okay. 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 So I'm not going to tell you any more oh. than that because that'll be another interesting thing that we can talk about to and about i will say this as well if we're going to talk teasers one of my very favorite parts of the book is when we get to the end and Anne is so good about just presenting just fascinating engaging details well researched and then at the at the end she weighs in and tells you her opinion what she thinks interesting because i mean honestly verna's case just got dropped i mean yeah in, in effect it was never it was resolved. never solved it was yeah. never solved she tells you how she thinks it might have gone down. Interesting. I can't wait to talk to her yes. about that. I have a question I want to ask her because as I was reading it, there was something that just was a burning a hole in me. I was like, what about this? But what about this? So we've got so many things to talk to Anne about in our okay. interview. Cannot wait. It's going to be so fun. For our armchair, we're not going to weigh in right now because okay. we're going to save that. But okay. I will ask, do you have any questions or anything that you you are looking forward to talking I, with Anne about? I want to analyze his at-the-scene behavior. I want to talk about that. And something else, I don't know, we said we're not going to weigh in, but I wrote down while you were talking hired killer question mark, because that could be the reason for the second shot. That could be Mm. the reason why he wasn't worried about anything because he didn't really do it, but he knew who did. And he seemed so cold and calculating that could the car that drove by that they saw headlights and then he's up there with this guy and then they hear this second shot. I don't know. That's just what I wanted to talk about. I will say the accomplice theory is one of the many that, Mm -hmm. that was brought up Mm -hmm. so yes all right Ashley, well, I guess that brings us to our our cheers. Yes. I think it's obvious. Okay, it's obvious I wanna I wanna give a big shout out to Anne D'Angelo because right. her work is just fascinating and, and kudos to her for taking that time and that integrity to do such a great job with this. Mm-hmm. But also Verna. Yeah. I just I just loved her in this book and it was just it was just so tragic and so unfair to her on yeah. so many levels. Yeah. So how about Cheers to two strong women. That's right. And Angelo and Verna Gar Taylor. Cheers. Cheers. 
If you love what we do, please rate and review our show. Or you can become a supporter by making a donation through buymeacoffee.com slash scandalwaterpod. Whether a single gift or a recurring monthly donation, it would go a long way towards supporting our work and allowing us to keep the tea brewing. At our website, www.scandalwaterpodcast.com, you can submit questions or your own story ideas, access our sources and show notes, see the merch we offer for sale, and more. You can join the Scandalwater community through our Scandalwater Podcast Facebook page or follow us on Instagram or TikTok at Scandalwater Podcast. This episode was executive produced by Candy Thomas, that's me, and Ashley Raymer Brown, that's me. It was researched and written by Candy Thomas and edited by Ashley Raymer Brown. A special thank you to Josh Martin, who wrote, composed, and performed the Scandalwater theme and other music. Matt C. Adams, who created the artwork, and Joshua Reith, who designed our website and provides ongoing technical support. As a reminder, this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. The thoughts and opinions of the host during each episode of Scandalwater are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests, advertisers, or clearly professional psychologists. Thanks for listening.